0: You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. I'll be reading today from Romans 2, 12-16. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel god judges the secrets of men By christ jesus. This is the word of the lord Good evening mercy view. My name's trey. It is uh, great to have a chance to speak with you guys again, Um, i'm a church planning resident here and uh, It's always just a great privilege to have an opportunity to open god's word together. So if you have your Bibles, leave them there in Romans chapter 2. We're going to go from verse 12, actually all the way down to verse 29, and finish out the chapter this evening. That's where we're going to camp out. Now, my wife, Ellen, and I have two really awesome kiddos. I have Eliora, who's four, going to turn five in uh, February, and Jansen, who turned two just a month ago. And uh, one thing uh, about having kids, when you have kids, is you want to actually be sure that when you're disciplining them, which we have to do quite often, uh, you you wanna be fair, right? especially if you have more than one kid, you you want your discipline to be fair. You don't want one to think that they're getting the raw end of the deal, right? And the other always gets things easily. And so there's a set of standards and acceptable behavior that you have for your children. And you try to keep that as consistent as possible across the board. For example, uh, screaming and throwing things is unacceptable behavior. Someone has something that you want, but they won't give it to you. Well, just taking it out of their hand is not an option. Both of these things happened this afternoon. Retaliatory biting hasn't happened, thankfully, for said taking. That's also not something that we're going to let just kind of slip underneath the rug. Like these, these are pretty reasonable standards for childhood behavior. We want to teach every kid these things because we want them to grow up to be adults that know these things. But well, what gets just a tad difficult is the application of the standard when your toddler does something for the first time, that your four-year-old, if they were to do it, they're going straight to their room. Like The toddler can barely put a sentence together, but the four-year-old knows better. four-year-old's been around a little bit longer. They've had a little bit more time to get accustomed to what the standard's And so if they throw a temper tantrum, if if, if Eleora throws a temper tantrum about not wanting to eat her broccoli and throws it across the room, she's going to be going to her room. But if Jansen, who's two, throws a temper tantrum and throws it across the room, he's going to still get in trouble but it's gonna look a little bit different because their knowledge of the standard, their knowledge of what it is that they are supposed to be adhering to is gonna play into the way that we are gonna parent, play into the way that we're going to discipline. Both are gonna receive discipline, and both of them are gonna receive discipline based on the standard, but it's gonna look a bit different. And so when we think about how the judgment of God works, now, and especially on the day of judgment at the end of the age, what's the standard that God's going to be using in passing judgment on us? And this text that we're going to unpack tonight, is, uh, it, it's going to show us that. And it's inextricably linked to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where we read just a couple weeks ago that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And so this evening, I want us to think about, as we think about what is this standard, I want us to think, how's God defining what unrighteousness is? What constitutes ungodliness? Maybe a tad more specifically, on the day of judgment, when God judges the secret thoughts and actions of my heart and of your heart, when he renders to each of us, according to our works... What standard is God going to judge you? What standard is he going to judge me by? In our text tonight, Paul's going to continue the line of argument that he started all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18. And for the next 18 verses of this chapter, we're going to see a continuation of that argument and really the argument that Ryan picked up last week. In chapter 1, we're given this picture of lawlessness and this picture of unrighteousness, the the pagan, the man or the woman who actively is suppressing the truth of God through willful ignorance. And then at the end of the chapter, he begins to turn the tables. And we saw last week that Paul points the wrath of God back toward the self-proclaimed righteous, the religious, the moralist the one who knows not just the eternal power and divine nature of God because they can clearly perceive it in what's been made, but those who know who God is and what God requires because they have his word, because they have his law, because they've been a part of his covenant community. And he points out their hypocrisy, their failure to obey the law, while at the same time passing judgment on those who break the law when they themselves are doing the very same thing. And he says that because of their hard and impenitent hearts, they're storing up for themselves wrath on that day, on that day of judgment, because they have all of God's invisible attributes. They have all of his divine nature. And they also have the law, and yet their actions would lead us to believe otherwise so what I wanna do for the next few moments is I wanna answer the question, what is the standard? What is the standard that God is going to judge every man and every woman who ever has and ever will live on at the end of the age? When the day of judgment comes, when God prepares to render to each according to his works, how's he going to do this? And once we see that, what I want us to turn our attention to next and this is especially for those of us who would tonight call ourselves Christians, is we have to see the hopelessness of hypocrisy. And then, after that, once our despair at our inability has started to set in, a little spoiler alert, we're gonna see how God has given us a way out of the crushing weight of what he requires of each of us. And so look with me down at verse 12. We're gonna read again down to verse 16, what we read just a minute ago. What is God's standard? This is what Paul says. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Right here in verse 12, right out of the gate, we have the answer to that first question we, that we want answered tonight. What is the standard that God's going to use to judge the world by? And at the end of the age, when all is said and done, God is going to render to each of us according to our works with His law as the standard. His revealed law In scripture is going to be the thing that he judges you and I based upon it's going to be the thing that he judges all of the world based upon whether or not they've heard it or not like Paul makes pretty clear here that even though people may not have the law still the thing that God's going to judge them by and for those who do have the law it's especially the thing that's going to be rendered that judgment's going to be rendered on That's what he says right here. All who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. All who have sinned under it will be judged by it. Even the Gentiles, even those who haven't heard the law, who don't know the commands of God as revealed in Scripture, they're going to be judged on this standard. And so I want you to think back for a few moments to the illustration I kind of gave this there at the beginning with my kids. Now, admittedly, This isn't a good one-to-one necessarily, but I think it gives us a picture of what Paul's saying and a lens through which we can see this and understand just a little bit better how it is that God's going to judge all of us by this same standard. You see, in our home, there's a standard of conduct that we want to uphold. We have rules and expectations. And many of those things are things that by nature, my kids know that when they do them, they shouldn't have done them. I have more than once, and I think any parent who's in the room knows this, um, had a toddler pick up something that they knew they shouldn't pick up, cock their arm back when they know they shouldn't have picked it up in the first place and chunk that thing across the room all while looking at me going, like they know what they're doing and they know it's wrong. They know mom and dad aren't gonna be happy and they show that they know it's wrong because as soon as they do it, they begin to wipe that smile off their face and go, okay, yep, no, now I'm in trouble. They didn't even have to tell them the standard. They just knew that it was there. It's ingrained in them. It's built into them. There's just this innate built-in sense that what I'm about to do is wrong. It isn't gonna please mom and dad. And then because they're sinners, there's this little thing inside of them going, and I really don't care. They have these little consciences that are pressing on their hearts It's a knowledge of right and wrong that are already there, that's already implanted in. And this is what Paul is saying, that every person, anyone, Gentiles, anyone who who doesn't have the law written, the, the written law of God, they have at work in their hearts the same nature. It isn't just in the things that have been made that God has revealed himself to you and to me. He's revealed himself in the fact that he's made us in his image. So there's this imprint on our hearts of his divine nature, of his his image on us. And because of that, he's given us a conscience that knows how, in some sense, to discern right from wrong. Now, back in chapter 1, that people because of their unrighteousness, we see, have suppressed the truth, a result of that is that their conscience has been seared. And so because of suppressing the truth, see, the more we suppress the truth, the more it sears our conscience. And as our conscience is seared, there's this this layer of protection against feeling the conviction that uh, God's image in us would bring about, that the Holy Spirit would work into our hearts. But Paul continues to unpack here in verse 14 that that just because our conscience is here doesn't mean that God's not going to judge us by the same standard. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves. Even though they don't have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts either accuse or excuse them. And so this is why you know a whole lot of people who uh, we we would classify as good, maybe even classify as moral, who are also unbelievers. Maybe even just outright pagans, maybe outright atheists. And and, and there's this thing inside of them that causes them to, by uh, our feeble standards, seem to be good and moral. And this is why things like murder and lying and stealing, they're all things condemned by cultures, All around the world, all over the globe, people condemn things like that, that God's law objectively condemns. God's law, though, stands as this objective standard of what is true, what is good, and what is acceptable. And because it is true, we see it pop up in cultures all over the place. And so what Paul's doing here is he's setting up what he's about to hammer home for his Jewish readers. And what I think today he would be hammering home for those of us who would call ourselves Christians tonight. It's hinted at back in verse 13. It was hinted at back in verses five through 11 last week. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who are gonna be justified. See, his Jewish audience back then and his Christian audience today would be these people who are hearers of the law. We have God's word. Hopefully we're reading God's word. We're hearing it expounded often. Hopefully we're living in community with people who are pointing us to a holy God and to his holy standards and his desires for us to be a holy people. And what he's saying here is the same thing that he said back in verses 5 through 11, what Ryan pointed out last week. Works, good deeds, moral conduct, adherence to the law is an evidence of faith being worked into our hearts. It isn't just the hearers of the law who are righteous, but the ones who actually do it the ones who live it out, the ones who live by faith. And he's, he's setting up what he's about to show us in verses 17 through 29. And he's trying to kind of bring, I think, a twinge of shame to his hearers, to the, to the Jews, to the Christians in the room because they're hearers of the law. But he's asking this question. He's saying, hey, hey, you, you hear the law, but do you actually do it? Do you actually do it even more? Does your obedience to God get called onto the mat by people who don't even know God and don't even know God's law because of their conscience, they find themselves doing it more than you? And so with that in mind, I want us to turn our attention to verses 17 through 29. I want us to consider the hopelessness of hypocrisy. And here's the thing. I think all of us find ourselves at some point, at some time in this category of being a hypocrite. I think it's important for us to know that and to say that and to talk about that. I think a lot of times the church gets criticized for being full of a bunch of hypocrites. And and I think the reality is that's true. And I think the problem is we don't look at that in the face and confront it and go, you know what, that's right. I got a lot of hypocrisy, I got a lot of things that I'm blind to, and I need to be able to see the things that I can't see on my own. That's why we're here together. That's why we walk together, so we can see those blind spots. I'm getting off. The hopelessness of hypocrisy. Throughout chapter 2, Paul is having this argument with a Uh, particular type of person in mind. He he doesn't really name them until we get to verse 17. He's just kind of implying this person he's talking to. But in verse 17, we see that who Paul is talking to is your your prototypical Jew. A person who would be proud of the fact that they're a part of God's covenant people. Someone who would identify themselves as, as being a part of that people, who by birthright have inherited the law of God. The commands of God, whose very identifier, Jew, in in Greek means praise. Someone who lives a praiseworthy life before God. And so he goes on in the preceding verses to list these five characteristics and descriptors. And so look with me at verse 17. And I'm going to kind of read through these paraphrases, kind of chopped up a little bit. But he says, you rely on the law and boast in God. You know his will and approve what is excellent. You are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. You having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And then in verse 21, he turns from making statements to asking questions. And he starts with this really pointed question. You then who teach others... Do you not teach yourself? Do you not teach yourself? Similar to how Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount presses in and begins to call out his hearers' heart motives in relation to the law, specifically to the Ten Commandments. Paul is echoing the same thought and the same sentiment. Rhetorical question after rhetorical question. Hey, you you preach against stealing, but do you steal? You you preach against adultery, but do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, but do you rob temples? And he gets down to verse 23 and he exclaims, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And he's picking at and he's pointing at their self-righteousness at the hypocrisy that self-righteousness naturally produces in each of our hearts if we allow it to grow and we allow it to fester. And If it seems like he's sufficiently called the self-righteous into the room to count for their self-righteousness, he's not done yet. In verse 25 through 29, he goes straight to their Jewish identity as members of God's covenant people. And he brings together this thread of argument that he'd been weaving since back in chapter 1. About obedience to the law and this piece of cultural religious identity surrounding circumcision. And so in verse 25, he says, for circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. You see, this strikes at the heart of the pious Jewish readers' self-righteousness because, and, and this is why circumcision matters in this context, it's this outward sign that God has given to his people to identify them as belonging to him in the old covenant. However, echoing the prophets, Paul is pressing on this identity and he points out to the fact that God cares far less about their physical conformity to the sign of the covenant and far more about the substance of their lives. He cares far less about whether or not they've been circumcised and far more about whether or not their hearts are actually his. His. And so as we consider this portion of the passage tonight, where is the Holy Spirit pressing on us? Most likely, there aren't very many of us in here who are ethnically Jewish, much less culturally Jewish. And so how are we to consider Paul's calling onto the mat of this person that he kind of builds up here in verse 17 through 29? And how does it apply to us? Because I think it does, and I think unless we see it, it, we're going to miss something really big. In his commentary on Romans 1 through 7, Tim Keller writes that one way to approach verses 17 through 24 is to take the mention of Jew and replace it with Christian. And similarly, we could take every mention of circumcision in verses 25 through 29, and we could just kind of replace that with baptism or church membership. And there's these two specific comments that he makes in this section that I'm going to read at length tonight, and and because I think it's just helpful for us to see this and get a picture of this. So the first is in reference to verses 17 through 24, and Keller says this. He says the crushing result of Christian moralism is that it dishonors God. That's a bold statement. The crushing result of Christian moralism is that it dishonors God. When religious people boast about their law-keeping while breaking the law, usually the only person who cannot see what they're doing is them. Worse, irreligious people look at and dislike the God who moralists claim to represent. Paul is thus arguing to the Jews, you were called to be a light to the world. You think yourself as bringing light to those who are in darkness, and yet... The world finds your religion totally unattractive. Don't you see that therefore you must have misunderstood it? He says we need to pose ourselves the same challenge. Is our church community and are we as individuals attractive? Is our humility, love in hard situations, grace under pressure and so on obvious for others to see? See self-righteousness and the moralism that it produces in us, Keller says, is one of the reasons that people on the outside looking in, when they get a peek behind the curtain of our lives, or they get a peek behind the curtain of our church, a lot of times they go, Nope. No, I don't want any of that. I want to stay as far away from that as I possibly can. And Keller's question at the end of this quote, I think is really important. It's really pointed and it's helpful for us to ask ourselves, is our church, is my life attractive to people outside of the faith? Not in some seeker-sensitive, ignore sin, go lax on holiness kind of way. Now this is a genuine question when people take a peek behind the curtain of your life, or they get a glimpse here at your missional community, or they, they have an opportunity to see what we do here in this place, what do they see? They see an accurate representation of what repentance for sin looks like? Or they see it as blame shifting. Or do they sit? here and see hospitality? Do they feel welcomed among us? Or do they just see a bunch of people circling the wagons amongst their friends? Do they see grace? Do they see a willingness to be honest and open about the ways in which that we still are struggling with sin, but we are, by the grace of God, walking toward holiness? Listen, when things are going good, When we're nailing it, it's super easy to slip into this comfortable holding pattern in our walk with the Lord. We become less vigilant in our fight against sin and we're less aware of how our interactions are going with coworkers who who know that we're believers. We're less hospitable to folks maybe outside the community who come in here. We get this tunnel vision and we're unable to see Exactly where self righteousness is able to creep into our hearts. And Keller makes another particularly pointed statement in regards to verses 25 through 29. And I think it helps us contextualize what Paul's saying and pointing to about circumcision. And so he paraphrases Paul's words. He says So, what if you've been baptized? So, what if you're a church member? This only counts for anything if there has been real change in your life, if your heart has been truly affected. Don't you know that you're not a Christian if you're only one externally? That real Christianity is not about having confidence in external things? No, a Christian is someone who is Christian inside. What matters is inner baptism, a heart membership of God's people. And this is a supernatural work of God, not a human one. It's possible to trust in Christianity rather than Christ. Now let that sink in. It is possible to trust in Christianity rather than Christ. This is at the root of hypocrisy. He says this produces a dead orthodoxy, and it makes the church into a religious cushion for people who think they're Christians, but in fact are radically and subconsciously insecure about their acceptance before God. Hypocrisy produces dead orthodoxy, a kind of belief that has doctrine sorted out, it has all the right things in the right places when it comes to doctrine, but it's lacking the actual life and power of the Spirit that's given to the people of God. And so tonight, do you feel crushed yet? Do you feel the weight of what Paul is saying yet? Because what he's trying to press on us and what I think Keller helps draw out for us is how utterly hopeless, hypocritical self-righteousness leaves us. And I think how easy it is for us to slip into that. If you then take places like verse 13, where it's not the hearers of the law, but the doers who will be, Justified Verses 21 and 23, do you teach yourself? The name of God is blasphemed among unbelievers. You take those and then you couple that with Jesus' words in Matthew chapter five as he's beginning the Sermon on the Mount. And, and Jesus says, not Paul, Jesus, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, there's the standard, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot is gonna pass from the law until all is accomplished. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he gets down to the end of chapter five as he's finishing this first section of his sermon on the mount, and he has this statement that has always left me feeling like, well, what am I gonna do? He says, you therefore must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Jesus looks at us and he says, you must be perfect. Paul says, don't just hear the law, do it. Jesus says, be perfect. Perfect, And all of us tonight, Christian or not, are confronted with two realities. God's standard of judgment is his perfect law, and I can't be perfect. I'm just not. I can't do it. And so what do we do. Where is the hope? What is the way out of this mess? And that is the good news tonight that's the gospel we could turn to any number of places in Romans tonight and get a good concise description of the gospel but as I thought about what Paul has been laying on us throughout this chapter I feel like something he said to another church in a different letter actually just kind of paints that picture really well for us And, and here's the here's the difficulty about preaching these early parts of Romans is Paul's spending the first like three and a half chapters just laying on the bad news because he's setting up for when he's gonna show us the gospel, he's gonna tell us the good news. I don't wanna spoil that in Romans. So we're gonna look at 2 Corinthians chapter five where I think if you were to ask me, hey, what's one sentence, one sentence that sums up the gospel, I think the place that I would go is Romans, or not Romans, 2 Corinthians five, verse 21, where Paul writes, Paul writes, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, the perfect one, the one who knew no sin, to be sin so that in him we, The imperfect might become the righteousness of God. See, throughout our passage in Romans, Paul said and is going to continue to say, religious, irreligious, all of us are standing under the judgment of God because God's standard is perfection. And none of us tonight can escape the reality that we fail to meet the standard. Whether that's because we're in willful disobedience or blind ignorance, we fail to meet the standard. Whether our sin is blatant and continued disbelief or having been lulled to sleep by our feeble attempts at being a good moral person, we all stand under the judgment of God's perfect standard that we cannot measure up to. God expects perfect obedience, but even on our best day, Even on our best day, we know that's not possible. But here in 2 Corinthians 5.21, we actually see the way in which God through Christ brings hope to us. The way that Jesus, after having told us, you have to be perfect, he looks at us and he says, but don't worry. I've got you. I've got this. We actually see the way that Jesus brings us hope because if all we had is this picture of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount telling us to be perfect tonight, we might still end a little hopeless. See, God expects perfect righteousness and perfect obedience, and Jesus was perfectly righteous and perfectly obedient. And when he said in Matthew 5, You must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That your righteousness has to go beyond that of the religious elite. He knows that yours can't and that theirs couldn't. He knows that. He knows that and he looks at you and he says, but mine can. not Mine can. Not only can Jesus be perfect, not only can he be perfectly righteous and perfectly obedient, he was. And he did. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Tonight, the Lord wants to meet you where you are with his truth and let it pour down into your heart. He wants to show you that he has provided you a rescue through the death of his son who did not deserve to die. The penalty for sin is death, and Jesus had no sin. So why did he die? He died because he took your sin. He made this exchange. Your sin, his righteousness. He takes your sin on himself, all of your misdeeds, all of the things that you've done, all the things you're going to do, and he places them on himself, and he takes his righteousness his holiness, his perfect obedience, and he says, this is yours. It's now yours. On the cross, Jesus took your sin and he exchanged it for his righteousness. That is the gospel and that is the hope for every irreligious and every religious, self-righteous, hypocritical person in the room tonight. Who is going to be justified on the day where we all stand before God? It's those who believe this. That's those who believe the gospel. Paul is right when he claims it's those who are doers of the law, not just hearers. Jesus is right when he says it's the ones who have a righteousness that far exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus is serious when he says that we have to be perfect, but we only get there through him. God is gonna judge each of us according to the standard of his perfect law, his perfect righteousness, but when he turns his gaze towards you, he's only gonna see one of two things. Either all your efforts to be a good person and live a moral life, or he's going to see Jesus. And his righteousness imputed, given to you as if it were your own. And if on that day the only thing that you have to stand on is your record, then believe me tonight, it doesn't matter how good you were, it isn't gonna be good enough. He's gonna look at you and all your feeble efforts to follow your conscience or even your ability to do what he commands, and his wrath is going to fall on your head. But if on that day, if on that day what you have to stand on is not your record or the record of another, on the record of Jesus who was made to bear the weight of all your sin, so that you could be given his righteousness, then when... God sees you. He's not going to see your sin. He's going to see a son. He's going to see a daughter. He's going to see his son as he stood in your place. He's going to see that all of his just wrath for sin that was stored up for you, it's already been poured out on the cross. Your sin for his righteousness. Your guilt for his acceptance. Are you trusting in yourself or are you trusting in Jesus? Are you trying to just be a good person, to be a moral person, or have you realized how impossible that is? You'll never measure up. You'll never be enough. Your good deeds will never be enough. Your morals will always fall woefully short. But get this tonight. Jesus has already done it. John read from Psalm 130 to start our call to worship. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. If God was to hold your sin against you, you couldn't stand, but he offers forgiveness in Jesus. Jesus. He's saying, trust me and I'll make you righteous. Trust me and you'll never be crushed by your inability to do what's right. Trust me and believe in me and you'll find that obedience flows not from your effort, but from faith. It flows from faith, not the other way around. And that's actually the point that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians. Read this and I'm gonna close. It says, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, who for their sake died and was raised. When we see the great exchange that God made, accepting Jesus in our place, receiving us as though we were righteous because of him, when we really see that, it changes us. You can't really see that and see the depth of the love that God has for you in Christ and not be changed. This is the hope for the self-righteous tonight. Believe the gospel because when you actually believe it, there's no way that you can be someone who hears but doesn't do. You can't be someone who teaches but doesn't teach yourself. You can't be someone who has all of the cultural accoutrements and none of the actual life change. He died so that you could live. And if you're living because of Jesus, you're going to live for him. Faith, genuine faith is evidenced by obedience. You receive grace and you live by grace. And he offers the same grace and mercy to each of us tonight, irreligious or religious, to the unbelievers suppressing the truth to varying degrees, but feeling in their heart the need for a different life, and to the self-righteous moralist who is blinded to their sin, that they don't even see their own hypocrisy. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in him we can and we will. Let's pray.